One of my favorite writers uh, working today is a man named John Darnielle. He, uh, he's written a couple of books uh, recently, but prior to that, he was famous as the, uh, the lead singer and songwriter for a band called the Mountain Goats. Uh, not, a, not a super popular band, but they are, uh, he's a phenomenal storyteller. And one of my favorite songs by the Mountain Goats uh, is a song called This Year. And in that song, Darnielle uh, narrates and puts us right in the shoes of a teenage boy going through uh, the hardest year of his life. His, uh, his parents have gotten a divorce. He's dealing with the wreckage of a broken home. He's beginning uh, to experiment uh, with drugs and alcohol. He begins uh, what becomes a very dysfunctional relationship with another hurting uh, young teenage girl. And so uh, the refrain throughout this song, the chorus of the song, is I'm gonna make it through this year if it kills me. I'm gonna make it through this year if it kills me. And so many of us can identify with that. We've been through uh, years. Maybe you're in a year uh, where it just feels like getting through to the end of it might be the death of you. Uh, but you're gonna try to make it through somehow. Well, the song ends, the final verse, I'm going to read it, not sing it to you. Uh, goes this way. <laughs> Gloria knows me well enough to appreciate the fact that I am reading and not singing. He writes, I drove home in the California dusk. I could feel the alcohol inside of me hum, pictured the look on my stepfather's face, ready for the bad things to come. I downshifted as I pulled into the driveway, the motor screaming out, stuck in second gear. This scene ends badly, as you might imagine, in a cavalcade of anger and fear. But there will be feasting and dancing in Jerusalem next year. I'm gonna make it through this year if it kills me. That one line, there will be feasting and dancing in Jerusalem next year, stands out in the midst of this song. There's nothing else in the song that's especially uh, biblical in its reference. There's not a whole lot in, uh, in what, of what we know about this author's personal faith that would lead you to, to see the, expect a line like this to come. And yet here it is, and he captures in this one line, there will be feasting and dancing in Jerusalem next year, a central element of the biblical faith, which is that Israel, uh, in its life, in the rhythm of its yearly life, had this rhythm of feasting. There were these three major feasts a year where the Jewish people, uh, any who could, were expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. Now, life in Israel could be hard, right? Life, uh, as it is for anyone outside of Eden, outside of the garden that we are created for. Life is hard. We suffer, we hurt, we struggle. Israel, life was hard. They had been through exile. They had been through foreign oppression. They had lost almost everything they had. And yet still, God built into their annual calendar this rhythm of feasting, that they would go to Jerusalem. They would celebrate. They would, certainly it was a spiritual feast. They would worship. They would pray. But it was also a feast in a very real bodily way. They would celebrate, they would party, they would eat, they would drink, they would celebrate in their bodies this life they had with God. What this points us to is that to, to make sense of life in this world, this difficult life where sometimes we're just trying to make it through the year, is that we have to find a way to have joy. We have to find a way to have celebration and life and joy. 
in a way that's not tethered to our circumstances, in a way that's not entirely tethered to the suffering that we also go through in this life. And now John, uh, the author of the gospel that we've been spending this time in, he spends a lot of time in the feasts of Israel. You may have noticed as we've been preaching through the gospel and we've been talking about it that Jesus is always going to and from Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem for the first time for the feast of the Passover. He goes to Jerusalem again a second time for a feast that we don't have named. But John seems to be trying to tell us something. And I think what he's trying to tell us is this, that if you want to understand Jesus and who he is and what he offers, you have to understand these feasts. You have to understand feasting. And on the other hand, if you want to know feasting, if you want to know real joy, not just uh, fleeting parties, not just temporary escapes, but if you want to know real feasting, you have to know Jesus. That only Jesus can bring the feast. Only he can bring the true celebration to our lives, to our hearts. You know, Ernest Hemingway once said, uh, the young man who spent his youth in Paris has for the rest of his life a movable feast. Now, most of us have not been so fortunate as to spend any time in Paris, uh, let alone our entire youth. But that idea that, that he has the memories, that he has the, these scenes of his life that are a movable feast, a feast uh, that he can take with him, that's not dependent simply on getting back to a physical location or a physical time. I think John's point is that the one who knows Jesus, the one who's met Jesus and been served by him, has a movable feast, a feast, a party, a joy uh, that he can carry with him the rest of the days of his or her life. And so uh, we are going to look this morning at the feast. Uh, it happens to be this time the Feast of Booths that Jesus goes to celebrate. And we're going to seek to understand the feast. We're going to seek to understand how Jesus brings fulfillment to that feast and how we can celebrate the feast with him. First, to understand it. You know, the Feast of Booths uh, was the high point of Israel's feasting year. It was, uh, in, a, in a way of speaking, it was their Thanksgiving. So it's fitting that we're getting there around this time of year. Uh, it was their Thanksgiving holiday. It came around this time. It came in October usually. And it was uh, the time where they celebrated the, the ingathering of the crops, the harvest. So the Israel had four major crops uh, in their agricultural life. It was an agricultural society. And by this time of year, they would have brought in their grain, which was barley and wheat, and they would have brought in the, the, uh, the olives and the grapes. Those were the major crops of Israel. And so just like we do at Thanksgiving, we give thanks for the harvest. We give thanks for what God has blessed us with. So they would be giving thanks for this incredible uh, provision that God had given them of life for another year. Right? When you live in an agricultural world, if God doesn't send rain and he doesn't send right conditions and he doesn't keep away the pestilence, Right? You don't have a crop, you go hungry. And so they were celebrating before God their thankfulness for what he had given them for another year. But it wasn't just that. Right? It's an odd name for a feast to call it the Feast of Booths. Um, they also celebrated uh, by, this is interesting, they celebrated uh, by everybody would go to Jerusalem and everyone would make tents for themselves. They would make it out of uh, branches and leaves and flowers. They would make temporary shelters for themselves. So if you lived in Jerusalem, you would get out, you would move out of your house for a week. You might go to your roof or you might go out into the back alley or the street. 
and you would camp out uh, for a week. You would build these booths for yourself. If you were a, a visitor to Jerusalem, you would make a booth for yourself in Jerusalem. So imagine the scene, right? Everyone going to the city, everyone camping out together and feasting together. The reason they would make these temporary shelters was as a reminder to themselves that their forefathers journeyed through the wilderness and lived in shelters like that, right? If you remember when, when God delivered his people out of Egypt, when he delivered them in the Exodus, for 40 years they lived in the wilderness in tents and shacks. They camped out for 40 years. And so they would give thanks to God for what he had given them, for his incredible provision, but they would also remember that their forefathers had not always had a land of their own, had not always had a land that could provide for them like this. That they too, in their life with God, were on a journey. That they, even in the midst of God's provision of great things, they too were in a journey where they, this, this world was not a permanent home where they suffered and they struggled and they went through the wilderness and they suffered exile, that even in this life, they were pilgrims. And so every year they would celebrate in this way, celebrate this journey that they were on, longing for home. You know, Israel, when they wandered through the wilderness, they lived in tents and God himself went with them, right? God himself lived in a tent, when they were going through the, through the wilderness. That's why this feast is oftentimes called the, the Feast of Tabernacles. That it remembers the time that they and their God lived in tents in the middle of nowhere. Right? God would go out before them in a pillar of fire, or a pillar of fire by day and cloud, or cloud by day, fire by night. And then whenever they camped out and they pitched their tents, God, they would also pitch a tent for God and God would dwell with them right there in the midst of their journey. He did this to, rem to remind them. It's, it's beautiful. The, the tent that he lived in was decorated. It was decorated with weavings that, that showed cherubim, angels, guardian angels. It was decorated with images of, uh, of lush vegetation, almost to remind them that, he, that they were made to dwell with God. They were made for Eden where they dwelled with God originally, that God lived with them there, that he journeyed with them still, that he one day would make his home with them forever. And so they celebrated in this feast with, of tabernacles. They would go to, go to Israel, not only when they go to Jerusalem, they would not only camp out, but it would also be a time of incredible worship and sacrifice. More sacrifices were offered at the temple during this feast time than any other time throughout the year. The numbers are kind of staggering. In this one week, 70 bulls would be slaughtered. 14 rams, 98 lambs, and seven male goats, one each day is a daily sin offering. 336 ephahs of flour, which uh, we believe is about uh, almost 8,000 liters of flour, would be sacrificed as meal offerings to God. So it was this time of incredible sacrifice, incredible pilgrimage, the city jammed packed. And two of the main symbols that came to dominate this festival were the symbols of water and light. Water and light. Every day uh, during this festival, the priests would go out. Uh, he would leave the temple and he would take a golden pitcher and he would walk out of the temple surrounded by a group of people who would walk with him singing and praising and chanting the Psalms. And he would go down to a pool, the pool of Shalom in Jerusalem. And he would fill up his pitcher and he would go back, back up to the temple mount. 
And the people would be singing, they'd be chanting, they'd be reading the Psalms. They would chant out loud together uh, the words of the prophet Isaiah in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the priest would lift up the pitcher and he would pour it uh, into this beautiful giant basin there in the temple. And it was meant to symbolize for the people when they saw the water poured out, when they saw it overflow the basin, it was to remind them of the time when they were in the wilderness, when they were journeying through the desert and they were thirsty. And Moses had struck the rock with his staff and water had poured out that God had given them life in the midst of the wilderness. They do this once a day throughout the festival and everyone would go to the temple and celebrate. And if that wasn't a pretty cool scene, at night, at night the scene would have been just absolutely mind-blowing. At night they would go into the temple and they set four uh, uh, lanterns up in the four corners of the temple. These lanterns would have been on the top of 75-foot-tall pillars. Imagine a 74, 75-foot pillars with uh, with a lamp on the top. And every night, just as the sun began to set, Young men, if you have lamps at the time, you have to have oil to the lamps. How do you get oil to the top of a 75-foot lantern? You fix it on the back of some young men, and they climb up the lantern. As everybody's cheering them on, as everybody's celebrating, they would go up, and they would light the lanterns. The the wicks of the lamps were the, uh, the priestly garments that they had used, the linens that they had used over the course of the entire year. They would be twisted into giant wicks, doused with oil and lit on fire. The rabbi said that the the fire from these lanterns lit the entire city of Jerusalem, right? In a world without stadium lighting that you could just flick on to light a city at night. These lamps, would they, they say, would just cause light to spill into every street and every back alley of Jerusalem is a sign to the people that they were made to be a light among the nations, that as they lived in covenant with their God, that they were to be a light that lit up a dark world, a light that everyone could see. This feast was so big and so grand that it became, uh, the Israelites spoke of it in shorthand simply as the feast, right? If, if they said the feast and didn't specify Yom Kippur or Passover or one of the other feasts, it knew they were talking about this feast, the greatest feast. And so as this feast comes, Jesus' disciples, they're up there in the backwoods of Galilee where hardly anyone uh, who's anybody lives. He's doing incredible miracles, but nobody that's important in the world is seeing him, right? He's just fed 6,000 people. He's just walked on water. Incredible things. And his disciples, uh, ever the pragmatists, ever the propagandists, think, hey, Jesus, here's what you gotta do. You need to stop doing these incredible things back here with the, with the hill people. And you need to go to Jerusalem on the biggest feast day of the year, right? Everybody's in Jerusalem right now. If you went to Jerusalem and you did the signs like you've been doing up here, if you did these things there, everybody would believe in you. Everybody would want to crown you king. Everybody would recognize you for who you are. So let's go, Jesus. Let's go to Jerusalem. All you've done in Jerusalem at this point is just heal one guy, the paralytic by the pool. That's pretty, that's good, but it's not feeding 6,000 people. Let's go and do something, show show them your power. And Jesus uh, interestingly says, no, my time has not yet come. 
It's not yet time for me to go to Jerusalem. It's not yet time for Jerusalem to see who I am in all of my fullness. We're at this point about six months away uh, from Jesus' death. He knows that that's the way that he'll show the world who he is. Isn't through a sign of his, his power or his might, but through his sacrificial death. And so he tells, uh, he tells his disciples, no, it's not yet time for me to go up. They go anyway to the big festival as, as they were called to do, as they were required to do. And then it says Jesus goes up in secret. Jesus sneaks up after them, after they've gone. He goes not to be the center of everything. He goes not to show everybody, but simply to do what Jewish males were required to do, which was to go to Jerusalem for the feast. And so he slips out and he goes... He's trying to go somewhat incognito without everybody knowing who he is. But still, he becomes the center of controversy. The Jewish religious leaders recognize him. They begin to go after him for all of the same things. That were st they're still upset, believe it or not. Probably a couple of years later by this point, they're still upset that he healed the man by the pool on the Sabbath. They still haven't gotten over the fact that he worked on the Sabbath and led this guy to pick up his mat and therefore break uh, the law as they understood it. And so a, a conversation starts, and in it we see how Jesus uh, doesn't just celebrate the feast, but actually gives it its meaning, gives it its fulfillment. I love what he does, and he gives us a clue here. In verse 21, so the, 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 Jew, the Jewish religious leaders are getting on to him about healing a man on the Sabbath, and this is what Jesus says. He says, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. So it came from Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So if a, if a baby was born in Israel, Israel and the day came for his circumcision and it happened to be a Sabbath, they thought that the, the command to circumcise trumped the command not to work on the Sabbath, and so they circumcised him. And so he said, all right, you'll cut on a young baby on the Sabbath. But if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made, I made a man's whole body well? You see his argument. He's saying if, you, if you'll cut one part of a man's body off on the Sabbath, and I'm here on the Sabbath giving life to a man's whole body, taking a man who hadn't walked in 37 years and enabling him to walk. He says, look, the circumcision was only ever meant to be a sign, right? It was a seal of God's covenant, but it was, it was to point you towards something even greater, right? When, this, when, when circumcision would be done, not just on the body, but on the heart, when a man's character, his whole life from the inside out would be remade in covenant with God. And here I come and I'm filling up this form. I'm filling up this sign and seal and showing you somebody literally going from death to life, from, from paralyzed to, to new life. And in doing that, he's saying, that's what I'm doing with all of the Israelite customs. That's what I'm doing with everything. That's what I'm doing with these feasts, is that I'm coming to take what was meant to be a placeholder, pointing you towards something bigger and greater. And I'm coming to fill it with new life, fill it with my very self. I'm coming to bring uh, real fulfillment to these promises. And so that's what's going on in verse 37. When it says on the last day of the feast, the great day, we, we already know that Jesus by this point is in the temple. He's already gone into the temple. And here on the last day of the feast, remember what's going on in the temple with the priests and pouring out the water. 
in the chanting from Isaiah, Jesus comes in and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given for Jesus was not yet glorified. Hear what he's saying? He's saying you're looking back to to the past where God caused miraculous water to flow from the rock in the wilderness. But, But I've come to give you real living water. I really am the rock that was struck, that will be broken open so that water flows out to water a thirsty world. If you want to have real life, real sustenance in a dry and thirsty world, it's not found by looking back to what happened uh, in the wilderness. It's found by looking at me. It's found by looking right here at who I am and what I offer and what I give. Later on in in chapter eight, uh, we didn't read it. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Uh, Jesus says in chapter eight, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Maybe he said that as the torches were being lit, as the light was coming out in the darkness. Jesus is saying, look, it's not these lights that give light to a dark world. It's the light of my life. It's the light of my glory that will show you uh, what real life really is, what real light is really all about. So Jesus comes uh, to fulfill the feast. And the message of this passage, the reason that Jesus is doing this in John, even though the all of the religious leaders are missing it, is that Jesus is saying, if you want to have real life in the midst of the wilderness of this world, in the midst of your thirst, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of those years that you're just barely trying to make it through, if you really want to have that kind of life, it's found in me. It's found by coming to me. And we can experience that feast uh, here and now. Augustine, uh, the great early uh, Christian theologian, put it this way about this passage. He said, at the present time then, before we come to the land of promise, before we come to the land of promise that's ours, namely the eternal kingdom, we dwell in the wilderness in tents. Just like Israel did in their journey home, in their journey through the wilderness, we dwell in this life in tents. Just like they were on a journey, we're on a journey. Right? We're not yet at our destination. We're not yet at the fullness of what we'll have in Christ. But we are on a journey just like Israel was. And just like this feast reminded them of all that they have with them in that journey as they go, so do we. Right? It reminds us that, yes, we were made for Eden. We were made for perfect paradise with God. And just as in, as in Eden, the garden was watered by four rivers that, that always flew, flowed fresh. And just as outside of Eden, in this wilderness, God provides for us. He provided for Israel through the rock. He provided for them, for, the, for their, uh, their parched mouths and their dry mouths in the midst of the wilderness. So he provided for them. And in just the same way, he provides for us by his spirit. He provides for us by the spirit that Jesus pours out on us. You know, I love the qualification that nobody understood what Jesus was saying uh, But he says in verse 39, writing to a contemporary audience, now this he said about the spirit uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive because as of yet, the spirit had not yet been given. 
right? But we live in the age when the Spirit has been given, right? We live in the, in the age where looking at Jesus, he has poured out his Spirit into us and onto us, right? There's a lot of, I think Christians a lot of times are quite confused about what the Spirit actually is and does, right? We know that we're supposed to have the Spirit that gives us new life, right? We hear these incredible promises of the Spirit causing living water to flow in us, And yet sometimes we can live confused about that. We think that if we don't feel a certain way that the Spirit's not there. We think that if we don't worship a certain way, the Spirit's not there. If we don't have a certain kind of experience that maybe other people seem to be having, that the Spirit's not there. And yet biblically, the Spirit uh, isn't about just giving us uh, a spiritual high, right? It's not just about us feeling kind of warm inside or happy inside. Sometimes the Spirit moves us to joy. Sometimes it moves us to to feeling something, feeling the presence of God, worshiping in some certain kind of way. But when Jesus gives metaphors for the Spirit, it's that the Spirit does stuff. Uh, The Spirit is God's presence in our lives. It's the, the, the presence of God just as much as the Father or the Son, so is the Spirit, the very presence of God. And in John, we're going to get to look at a lot more of what the Spirit does. The Spirit shows us Jesus. The Spirit draws our hearts to see who Jesus is. But here, the Spirit's likened to water that causes life. Right? Think about that. In Christ, we are in every single person that's in Christ is in process. Right? We're all in a process of growing up into maturity, growing up into Christ-likeness, growing up into being who we were created to be. And just as water gives life to biological life, right? If you, if you plant something in your garden, you got to water it, right? I have made that mistake uh, with many a houseplant, right? That, that, that biological life takes water to live. And so our spiritual lives, just as water gives life to plants, gives water gives life to our bodies. So Jesus gives life to our spiritual lives by his spirit. His spirit causes us to come alive and to grow up into new life. Causes us to grow more and more into the holiness and maturity and uprightness that we were created to have in Jesus. So if you're asking yourself, is this a, am I experiencing the spirit? Is something that somebody's claiming is a work of the spirit? Is it really? Well, is it causing you to grow more and more into the image of Jesus? Is it causing you to grow more and more in towards maturity and uprightness into, into who you're meant to be? No longer bent inward in on yourself and your sin, but more and more looking and acting like Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. He shows us Jesus, and he helps us to live more like Jesus, like water that gives life to a garden. In the Garden of Eden, God himself was our light. He lived with us, and we dwelt with him face to face. Jesus comes to give us new life and new light so that we can live once again face-to-face with God, no longer living in shame, no longer hiding in darkness, but living with God in Christ. And so Jesus comes and says to his people, I came to fulfill this feast, and almost everyone misses it. Instead, they find it a cause to argue and to bicker among themselves. Uh, They they seek to to persecute Jesus. They seek to find a way to kill Jesus. He comes and offers them this incredible feast of life. And almost nobody gets it. Almost nobody sees it. You know, the, the danger is the same for us. 
is that Jesus comes with this incredible offer of real, deep, and abundant life, and that we miss it, that we miss out on what he's offering. Certainly, millions of people in our world today miss out on the incredible offer of life that Jesus offers. You know, interestingly, I think that uh, the reasons that the Israelites missed it are some of the very same reasons that we miss out on what Jesus offers. For them, their religion, as celebrated at this feast, was almost entirely about looking backwards and looking forwards. Right? It was about looking backwards at what God had done to deliver their forefathers from Egypt and to sustain them in the wilderness and to give them life along the way. So they were good at doing what, what they should have been doing, which is looking backwards at God's incredible redemptive power and looking forward. Right? They acknowledged that in this life we're journeying and we're not yet to, what, to our inheritance as it will be. And so we're longing for something in the future. And they're looking backwards and they're looking forwards, kept them from seeing Jesus, who's ever present, always right here, present with us, giving us an offer of real life. Right, and I think we can do the same thing. We can, we can, be, we can be convinced that our faith is primarily about looking backwards. That faith is primarily about nostalgia for a different time and the customs that we put around it to preserve that time. Right? I mean, maybe for you, it's looking backwards uh, at a time in your life. Maybe it was your, your, when you first uh, met Jesus. Maybe it's when you first heard the gospel and came to faith. And you look back on that time in your life as a time of unique joy and life and gladness and change. Everything seems so much happier and easier in your Christian journey. And so you look back and you think, you know what? The main thing that Jesus has given me was a salvation that happened way back then. And now I'm just kind of biding my time in the present. Yes, I'm thankful for back then. I'm thankful for what he did on the cross. I'm thankful for when he saved me. And then I muddle through life in the present because I know I'm headed to somewhere better, right? I know that I'm going to go to heaven. I know that I've got eternal security. I know that Jesus has purchased for me life. And we can live both in the past and in the future without the sense that look at what Jesus says that the believers are offered right here in the present, in a mundane Monday morning that you wake up to tomorrow. We have the Spirit poured out. He's been given to us. And he says to them back then, because Jesus was not yet glorified, but Jesus now is glorified. Right? Jesus is no longer hanging on the cross. Right? That's why we don't have Jesus on our cross up there. Right? Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. We, we thank God that he went to the cross. We thank God that his blood was spilt and his body was ripped apart so that life flowed out of it for us. But now Jesus sits at the right hand of his father, glorified. And we with him, we live together with him. So that when you wake up in the morning and pray, you pray to a high priest who's right there with the Father. You pray to a Jesus who's in a living and vibrant union with, it, with you. You pray as one who has the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you and within you and empowering your life. Right? We thank God for what God has done in our past. Right? We thank God for the fact that he lived and he died and he gave us new life, that if you have faith in Jesus, you are a new creation. And we thank God for the eternal life that we have ahead of us if you're in Christ. But in the Gospel of John, eternal life 
Eternal life is always the eternal kind of life right now. It's wells of living water. It's a, it's a fresh wind of the Spirit. It's real, deep, lasting, and abundant life. Bringing you from death in your sin into resurrection life. Here and now, in this body, in this year, in this time, in these relationships, these difficult and broken relationships, that God is breathing new life into you right now.